0: I normally sit in the front, and I never know what's going on behind me. So today I sat at the back, and it was such a delight to just be part of a congregation really worshipping God sincerely from the heart. And uh, be encouraged. We ought to be encouraged. I think indeed great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Well, we turn this morning to Hebrews chapter 13 again. And uh, this morning, I do want to make a few comments before I read the passage. It is a well-known passage. It is what we use and often refer to as a benediction, and mostly familiar to us, uh, quoted at the end of uh, a worship service or even at the end of a funeral service. And so I do want to point out right at the beginning, in fact, that I discovered that some of the passages that we take for granted, that we love so dearly, if we just dig a little bit deeper, there's even greater riches and blessing that we can derive from it. So I do want to pray, and then I'm going to make a few comments, and then I'm going to read uh, the benediction, verse 20 and 21 of Hebrews 13. Lord, again, just to acknowledge in unison, as we've done this morning in song, great is your faithfulness. We look back and we can say, Lord, thus far the Lord has been with us. But we know that the challenges of life are real. That day by day, Lord, something different uh, bends in the road and and hardships occur. uh, Challenges are presented. And so we pray, Lord, that we would continue to experience uh, your practical faithfulness in the everyday living of life. And, and Lord, we know that, that part of that provision, part of that faithfulness, is, is that which you have give, given to us in the word uh, to guide us, to direct us, and even to equip us. And so we pray to that end here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I did uh, two weeks ago uh, deal with a passage just before this. And uh, just to remind you, there was an appeal there From the author of the book, and the appeal was pray for us, pray for us. And the author's appeal is uh, something that he, as a leader, recognized uh, the gathering together of others that they would be praying for, he and the other leaders. That prompted us in that particular message to consider that we, too, as a congregation. That we leaders, elders, and pastors appeal to you as members of the church. Do pray for us. We leaders stand in desperate need of God's help. We need your prayers week in and week out. And the particular issue that we identified there is that we leaders can so easily stray, we can leave the pathway that God has called us onto, and our consciences are in need. I use the word of constant recalibration, that leaders constantly uh, conform to the standard of God's word. So easily we stray from the will of God. And so I repeat this morning again, pray for us, pray for us. Don't think that we are stronger than you are. Each of us in need of God's help, pray for us. But as we move on in this passage this morning, we are going to see that the need for prayer is mutual. What do I mean by that? In our passage, uh, the author having sought the prayers of the Hebrew readers for himself, we find him now immediately approaching the throne of grace for them. We're going to look at that prayer this morning. He has for the past 13 chapters, and us, I don't know, maybe 28, maybe 38 weeks, uh, considering the teaching and the exhorting and, and the doctrine and the encouraging that the author has been delivering to the Hebrews. So much has been said to them from him, to guide them, to inform them, to direct them. But now as he gets to the end of the book and prays this prayer, pleading that God would apply to the hearts of his readers the benefits and the fruit of all this important instruction which he has been presenting to them. So my point is this. Don't consider this benediction in isolation. This is not just some kind of fitting conclusion to a book separate from the rest of the book. The prayer for the Hebrews... A prayer that we often use is not a random uh, prayer. But in these few phrases, and I'm going to show you this this morning, he gathers together many of the themes of the book that he's been teaching on, and he prays them for the recipients of the letter. So having said that, follow with me and uh, look out for that as I read these verses to you. Verse 20. Now... And two major themes that we're going to be uh, following in, these, in this message this morning. The prayer is presented in a very useful way and, and uh, uh, appropriate way. You'll see in the verse 20, the person to whom he prays is presented. Something of a description of God that he goes to to present his request. Then, in the second verse, and this is the second division that we'll be looking at, we see something of the content of the prayer that he offered to God. Now, I'm going to put it under different headings. So, the person identified, yes, verse 20, the content of the prayer, verse 21. But I want to do it differently. And my first point I want to make this morning is every believer is in need of help. That includes all of us, yeah? Who are believers, uh, not only yesterday or 10 years ago, but today and in the years to come, you and I stand in need of help. It got me thinking, and I want to go back to my thoughts from the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah asks a very relevant and important question that I believe applies to our passage here today. Consideration that we need to give to this thought, this question. And I read in Isaiah 44, verse 10, he asks Here's a question. You think about this question. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? You get the thought? So, who, who in their right mind would fashion an idol, a god, out of a piece of wood or a piece of metal and, and goes to that thing that they have created to ask for help. We could put that in other words. Can anyone be so foolish as to create something out of wood or steel or anything else and treat it as a God, where we're told in, in verse 17 of Isaiah 44, having made this God, falls down to it. You get the picture? And worships it. And he prays to it, saying, Deliver me, for you are my God. The challenge coming to a passage like we are this morning. And in terms of what Isaiah says, you and I better be sure that the God we worship and pray to is not the God of our own making. Have to be very, very careful that we haven't constructed a God of our own manufacture we had better be sure that this God that we pray to is living and able and willing to meet your greatest and most desperate needs. It is a fact that God's little g, down through the ages, as we read in the Old Testament and even the New Testament and uh, even in our own day, the point is that I want to make, is that it is within our capacity in human beings to construct objects of worship and think of living idols as objects that we can worship and seek help from. They're in abundance. And I uh, do want to just give an example. I was listening to uh, an El Mola comment On worldview analysis recently, and he spoke of what many young people are being attracted to today, and I believe older people may be as well. The example I want to use that I went and found more and more people are looking to crystals. Have you heard about that? They're looking to crystals to find the solution for their needs. So I look for an article found an article very quickly. So an article in Vogue magazine 2020 tells of a lady by the name of Amber Finney. She calls herself a spiritual practitioner. And she makes use of crystals as a central part of her spiritual work. And I want to quote what she says. She, she says, and I quote, When it comes to crystals, there is something for every need. Whether it is emotional support, that's what you need. She says, go to the crystals. Or if you need confidence, go to the crystals. Or just overall vitality. And then she says, our ancient ancestors were well aware of the wisdom that could be found through crystals vibrations. That no joke. There are many, many people who are looking for help in the wrong place. This lady is definitely right that we as people all over the world, all ages, we need help constantly, repeatedly. But she's wrong. She's wrong about the place where she's advising people to go for help. Again, I want to repeat the kind of help we need is from God himself, the real, true, one, living, able, and willing God to meet our deepest needs. And so I want to dig into this passage. So not only we leaders, pastors, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, but all of us as a congregation, those next door, those now not listening online this morning, maybe audio, each one of us diligently needs to know where to direct our and that's a, a next point that I want us to consider this morning. Do you know where to direct your prayers? I have to quote A.W. pick getting to the end of Hebrews. So here's a quote, and, and he analyzes this verse, these two verses so well. He says, the person to whom the author prayed is yet described by one of his now, we know that God reveals himself, his revelation about God, through the various titles that he uses in all of the Bible. Well, the one particular title used in this passage, namely, the God of peace. He goes on. And then, by one of his works, now God does many works, the particular work identified here in these verses, the raising of Christ from the dead, we can explore that a little bit this morning, and this, in turn, ascribed to the blood of the eternal covenant. Now, God identified as the God of Peace. The seven references in the New Testament to God having the title as the God of Peace that should be of particular interest to us as human beings it's not very difficult for us to see and be led to ask the question how can there be peace where by very definition of our lives we did loggerheads with God how can there be peace we are people who prefer other things rather than God lesser things other than God we understand that we're under the judgment of God. We understand that we're under the wrath of God. So the important question coming to a passage like this, the God of peace, why, why would He be favorably, be dis, favorably be disposed to us? Why would He hear our pleas for help? Consider that very, very important question. Why would God listen to your and my prayers for help? Well, I want to start the explanation and uh, consider the last phrase in verse 20 first. We're going to try and see how these phrases connect one to the other. The last phrase is, By the blood of the eternal covenant. Well, it is through, we all know this, I believe most of us would know, I was so encouraged this morning, a young little girl in the children's talk, I don't think she's five years old, was able to express in response to a question that it's the blood of Jesus that saves sinners. So the blood which Jesus shed for sinners, it is through that blood that he became the great shepherd of the sheep. I'm trying to connect the passage the different phrases. Now let's think about the shepherd of the sheep. Jesus had from eternity past been shepherd of the sheep. Remember that we're told that He's the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So there is a plan from eternity past. However, Or we could say, if I could add to that, uh, we could say that by decree he is shepherd of the sheep. By ordination he's shepherd of the sheep. But on the cross, the death of Jesus on the cross, the sheep became his purchased property, his ownership. It was because of the atoning, or it is because of the atoning blood that God delivered Jesus from the grave. Now, we're moving to the second phrase. Think about Lazarus for a minute. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Why can't we go and uh, claim that we can have forgiveness of sins through Lazarus? Something unique, many things unique about Jesus, some of of which I'm going to touch on. Don't forget, don't neglect to see that Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep from eternity past, was brought into a state of death by sentence of the law. The perfect, righteous son of God, carrying the sins of the world, was declared to be guilty. And he needed to face, he was required to face, the consequential punishment for the sin of the world. But why then and at what point is he raised from the dead? Having fully satisfied divine justice, he did all that was required to settle the debt that was owed to God for the sheep. Perhaps we could think in our kind of terminology in the world, having served the required sentence, the sentence complete, Jesus was entitled to be delivered from being under the wrath of God in what we could even describe as some kind of captivity or prison. Justice was completely served. And he was therefore brought from there and restored by God. And yes, yes, where we get to the God of peace. He was brought from the grave as evidence. How do you know that God will listen to your prayers? How do you know that He is credibly the God of peace? The evidence of that peace has now been made visible through the resurrection of Jesus. And then through the virtue of this pacifying or appeasing blood of Christ, from that day forward, God is the God of peace to His sheep satisfactorily settling. He's put to bed this issue of sin that we constantly struggle with. He had fulfilled the stipulations, the stipulations of the eternal covenant, that agreement which he entered into with the Father before the foundation of the earth. Now now let me summarize that up. I hope you haven't missed the doctrine. Doctrine is important. Let me give it to you in simple terms. Judaism, that which was given as a a, a foreshadowing of what God was doing, bringing about this uh, peace that he could bring, the blood of the eternal covenant stands against the blood of bulls and goats. That great shepherd of the sheep, risen from the dead, in contrast to Moses, to Joshua, to David, to other leaders, who long ago were dead, have died. Well, the God of peace presents a striking antithesis to God when He descended on Sinai in that revelation of judgment. So therefore, I want to encourage you this morning. We come as believers directing our prayers to this God of peace because we now have been reconciled. We've been brought together God looks upon us and treats us in a favorable relationship. But I want to move on. You see, now having identified the God of peace, He's the only one we can go to, we ought to go to. He's able, He's willing uh, to address our deepest needs. We now move on to consider the content of the prayer. And I've put that under the heading, seeing that every believer is a worker in process. Salvation is a wonderful gift. There's no doubt about that. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled to God. God looks upon us favorably. It's a delight. It's a privilege to be a believer. It's a blessing. Anybody here this morning perfect? Uh, one or two? no. We all have blind spots. Every one of us still struggles with sin. I would not be surprised even in this last week in some way or another whether in thought or in deed, all of us sinned. We suffer with the remaining marks of sin. We have imperfection. We disappoint other people through unrighteous actions that we do. And other people disappoint us when they do sinful things toward us. And then let's not forget, this is not just a horizontal uh, relationship. We grieve the heart of God when we sin. So, we today are gathered, and I was in fact going to ask you all to look at your knees. I see some of you are looking. Look at your knees, your spiritual knees. We gather as a group of people with bleeding spiritual knees. And what do I mean by that? It's because we repeatedly and constantly, in our walk of faith, we fall in sin. We trip up. Isn't that true? All sorts of temptations that come our way. Whether it be coveting someone else's belongings, whether it's just greedy for more stuff, When when there are times when we are unable to resist getting angry unrighteously. Sometimes even in the context of relationships, mistreating a spouse, husband, wife, wife, husband, or harsh unduly harsh toward our children or perhaps disobedience of a child to a parent. Do you get the idea the we, we do things, whether it be, again, I repeat myself in thought, Jesus said when you look upon a woman in lust, you've committed adultery. So we, we, we have bleeding spiritual knees constantly falling, navigating the virtual world of adultery telling blatant lies. And, and so what I'm trying to convey to you this morning, and, and I hope it's an encouraging message, God hasn't finished with you yet. It doesn't mean that you just remain in your sin and, and be apathetic towards it. This prayer is going to help us to see that when, when I say God has not finished with you yet, there's a process. You are a work in process. I remember I used to be in production, manufacturing. And we had all sorts of components as work in process, but they never stayed at the lathe or the milling machine or the machining center or the grinders. We constantly were moving on these components to get to the assembly line where we could put together machines. And so you're a work in process. Well, there are two things, two things in this process where God is not finished with you yet. The first one is, he's praying for the repairing of that which is broken. Equip you, he says in verse 21, may this God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will. I looked at many explanations trying to understand this word equip and I concluded that the English word is wholly inadequate. All right, so so let me give you two of the better explanations, but it comes in a few words. An author by the name of T. Scott says this is what this word means. Rectifying every disorder of their souls and completely fitting them for every part of his holy service. Isn't that wonderful? That, that's, that's the goal. That's, that's the direction. That's, that's this work in progress where it ought to end. Or Alistair Begg. I think some of you listen to Alistair Begg in, in, in his ministry called Truth for Life. He has a great definition uh, uh, in, in translating this prayer. He says, may he put, this is God, may he put in you a proper condition. May he make you complete. May he restore you. May he mend you. May he repair you. This word is used elsewhere in the New Testament, so it's not uh, uniquely used in this passage. One example where it is used is in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, on that particular occasion, is coming to the disciples that are along the Sea of Galilee, and they've been out fishing, and they're on the shore mending their nets. This word is the same word used for mending the nets. They were repairing that which was broken. Isn't that great? God, so equip you, repairing that which is broken. And so this prayer today, as as the, the author prays for the believers, and remember, we're learning to pray for each other, it's a prayer for the progressive sanctification of the believer. You know what the problem is? We often see somebody trip up and we judge them. Rather pray for them. You see, God starts the, this work of sanctification at conversion. Definitely starts. There's a line in the sand where things begin to change. When you're born again by His Spirit. But the work of grace continues for the rest of your life. We need to receive that. We need to believe it. And, and, and even if you've made progress, and some have made progress and you're being more and more conformed to the likeness of Jesus, the reality is you need more molding. I need more shaping and strengthening because there are duties we need to perform, there's character that needs to change, and there's resilience needed for the trials that come our way. And so the prayer here, the prayer is an all-embracing prayer that includes, and again, quote another author by the name of Gooch, he says it includes all the fruit of holiness, god any deficiency in your relationship to God, and of righteousness, man I've never thought this benediction to mean all of this. Just a comment. There's a danger for all of us in thinking that because we do some good some even do much good the danger in thinking because we're making progress or have made progress that we can ignore the present defects that get in the way of the work of God and the honor of his name. And and again I, I probably thought it myself and I've heard others say it this particular phrase, well that's just who I am suck it up No. No. That's not who you ought to be. We cannot stop. The mending and restoring and the rectifying of you and me must continue because it is comprehensive. And how does it continue? Where does it continue? What's the goal of its journey? To do His will. That's God's intention to do His will. How do we know the will of God? Well, it's everything He makes known to us in the Scriptures. And so if I were to summarize this prayer, I'll do it like this. I'm praying that this God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, in other words, He has the substance of why this prayer can be directed towards Almighty God. This is the one whom I go to in prayer. And I'm asking him that he will give you everything that you require to do his will. Because I know that God is, not, is able not only to supply what is necessary, but to repair what is broken. Now that's the first petition. I want to move on. A little bit of an introduction to the second petition. I don't know if you've noticed when I've used the word, but let me say it explicitly. The first petition expresses the goal. This is where God wants you to get to eventually. A work in progress that needs to be complete and will be completed when the Lord returns or calls for you, not before. The goal. In the second petition, this is now where we get a little bit more practical. The second petition, he expresses and shows us the means, the method, the how that this will be accomplished in us believers. So, progress in repairing what is broken, this is what I'm going to elaborate. If there's brokenness in your life, progress in repairing that which is broken is brought about not only by moral persuasion, in other words, not just information, but by the actual and effective work of God in you. We evangelicals need to grab hold of that because we often only think of the head. This morning I want you to think about the heart. And so the second petition I've put under the heading, prayer for the working, the in-working of divine power. It's not my idea. Have a look at verse 21. This God of peace working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. We are weak spiritually. We are feeble. We suffer We suffer repeatedly with the corruption of sin. It's not enough for our minds just to be informed by means of external revelation and information. Now, I'm big on the Bible. I think you all know that. Authoritative... Uh, sufficient, inerrant word of God. But let me explain to you what I mean. A Bible study on marriage from the scriptures, of course, or a brochure giving biblical insights on dealing with pornography. And I've seen a lot of these brochures, and we pass them around uh, to people who struggle with this issue. Or teaching from Scripture on a particular uh, challenge like greed is unlikely to have any long-term effect in helping you or me overcome those challenges. Now, maybe you're a little bit shocked at what I'm saying here today, but I've seen it, seen it. I've handed brochures out, spent I'm speaking to people and I've quoted scriptures and uh, taught the scriptures and and we agreed to the scriptures and, and the truth of God. Here's the point. In addition to information and revelation and biblical truth, God the Holy Spirit must stimulate your affections. There needs to be a stirring within your heart. You need to get to the place where you love what He loves. And that will not happen unless the Spirit of God is at work in you. And you need to be praying to that end. And I need to be praying to that end for you. And you need to be praying to that end for me. But not only just that. There needs to be the Holy Spirit... Propelling, and I like that word propelling, borrowing it, of course, from my friend A.W. Pink, propelling our wills, praying toward us, making the decisions Jesus would make. Now, let me go a little bit further. You are in a wonderful position as a believer. I want to remind you of the position you're in this morning. Unlike the unbeliever, you have the Holy Spirit in your life as one who is born of the Spirit i 'm so saddened when people only liken the work of the Spirit to a gathering on a Sunday morning when they're worshiping together with others it's only it 's one small little slither of the work of the Holy Spirit. the deal breaking difference between you as a believer and someone else you know who is an unbeliever it's a horrible thought do you know that the unbeliever is under the destructive sin promoting influence of the prince of darkness don't be surprised when unbelievers do things contrary to what you know to be Honoring and pleasing to God. That under the influence, and this is not my idea, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2, following the course of this world, this is the nature of the unbeliever, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now here's the good news for the believer. Whereas for you and me as believers, you know what the scripture says in Philippians 2.13? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will, is the decision, the propelling of the mind to make decisions, and to work for His good pleasure. That's a wonderful truth. It's a wonderful privilege. Not forgetting, if I may say, in progressive sanctification, after your conversion, you have responsibilities. You need to stop watching series with nudity in it if you want to avoid pornography and lust. I mean, that's just your responsibility. It tells us that in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling your responsibility, human responsibility, for it is God who works in you to will and to do. So, in your struggles with sin, a course is helpful, definitely important. Information from the scriptures is crucial, definitely needed, hiding the word of God in our hearts. But an attitude of praying for God, in dependence on God, to put within you the desire to do His will. To do that which is pleasing in His sight and to give you the strength. It's a disposition that we need to move in and towards. Now there are two truths here that we need to perhaps just pull out and recognize just for a minute. When, when these two truths are recognized and, and honestly acknowledged, what are they? I want to encourage you this morning, acknowledge that you are impotent in and of yourself you're weak I'm weak we're powerless so that's the one side the other side is the efficiency of in wrought grace the efficiency the effectiveness of the Holy Spirit at work in you as a believer you hold those two things in tension and then you know what happens as you grow you give glory to God There's an old phrase we use, but I don't know if we understand it. We are trophies of grace. We are the work of his hands or the handiwork of God from salvation, for salvation, from start to finish. And in all of that, the, 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 the point is to point to the greatness of God's grace. That's why he ends uh, on the glory of God. Changes and repairs to our brokenness should not provoke others to pat us on the back. When you see somebody getting on well in the church, you know what we need to do? Thank God for what He's doing in your life. It is to God and God alone that honor and thanks is due. God must get the glory. Listen to the Apostle Paul. He he leads by example here. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. Do you see? There's an acknowledgement. This is not me. I'm weak. I'm, I'm a fragile vessel, broken vessel. It's not I, but the grace of God at work in me. I want to make a final comment, and then I'll conclude. There cannot be conformity to the will of God in your life until there is conformity to Him in your heart. Inward change. You see, external change, or what we could speak of as human effort in reformation or rehabilitation, man's method, apart from God's work, can produce for a short season, or perhaps even for a longer season, that which is visible to people. Look at me. The focus is on external show. And Jesus identified this in the Pharisees in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate. But inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. So external change doesn't do it for God, if I can put it in plain language. Real change, the divine method, is that God works from the inside, the heart. You've got to focus attention on heart change as the spirit works in you. That which is visible to God, no one can see what's in my heart this morning. And I cannot see what's in your heart. God can. And that's where we work towards. God addresses the state of the heart. Just my conclusion, I have it as implications, three of them very quickly. Number one, to go forward in sanctification you have to go downwards there's no way forwards unless you go downwards, what do I I mean by that there will be no spiritual growth in your life or my life unless you see and recognize and express and show your utter dependence on God you go down before you go forward Secondly, I've learnt in these last verses of this chapter again. Pastors and elders and deacons and members, we need each other in the church. Les, I'm so glad we had this. What is God doing? Thursday morning and Wednesday morning prayer meeting at Arcadia. Thursday morning at the hill. Look, we prayer is absolutely crucial. We, we must be praying. Now, Wednesday morning is not the only time. There's a pre-meeting that happens before the service here in the morning. There are other pre-times. But praying individually, together, in home Bible study groups, we need each other. The need is mutual. The challenge, and there's a challenge to us pastors and elders, and, and I want to say that categorically and specifically. This passage tells me, if, if this author went to the trouble led by the Spirit to conclude this letter in this way, praying for the, uh, the mending of these people. Man, we as elders better be praying for the members of this church. Elders' meetings, elders' responsibilities, not just about decision-making and policies and doctrine and vision. It's that. It's more. We have sheep, weak sheep, God has entrusted them to us. We cannot just be preachers of the word. We also need to fervently pray for the word to find a home in the hearts. We cannot be backwards in praying for the members and the members praying, of course, for the leaders. Last point, and uh, God must get the applause. And I'm hoping next week to preach on this uh, final phrase. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's, that's the whole point. Let us in all matters give the credit to God. Let us learn from the psalmist, from Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Isn't the word of God wonderful? Eesh, I love the word of God. You know, And the more I dig, the better it gets. And, 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 and the more exciting it gets. And so, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you this morning for the reality of truth and doctrine. But, Lord, thank you, too, for the person of your spirit. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue his work in us. Those who are not believers, Lord, that you would bring about the reality of the new birth. Keep us, Lord, from thinking that cultural Christianity is, is, is adequate. May we experience, each one of us, the vitality, the blessing of walking with you, experiencing the the removal of the heart of stone and the giving of a heart of flesh. And then, Lord, praying as we go forward, as we struggle, and, Lord, we confess, we do struggle. Keep us from pretending with each other that we have somehow arrived. But thank you for your patience, and, Lord, thank you for the mending and the repairing and the restoring that you do. All to the glory of your name. Amen.